This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 69. David Snyder on kinesthetic change. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. How are you feeling? And how do you feel that in your body and what does it make you picture in your mind? Hey, it's Jason Lynette here and this is a session that I've been wanting to record for quite some time and David and I went back and forth a couple of times in terms of finding the right time, the right schedule with his busy life, with my busy life to really make this work. David Snyder is somebody who I first got to know by participating with the uh, HypnoThoughts Live convention, though along the ways, as we like to say, we're all best friends on Facebook, seeing some of his content, seeing the applications. What I find fascinating about David's work is that, and you'll hear the story in this conversation you're about to listen to, is that in many ways he got an interest in some forms of hypnosis, some categories of, let's call it linguistic abilities, that may be questionable to some of you. Yet again, remember from my perspective, everything is contextual in nature. So to draw out the themes of eliciting powerful emotional states from categories which some of you may have already been dismissive over, of seduction or even erotic hypnosis, yet everything comes back to feeling. So it's actually one of the rare moments to give you some insights toward my process here with the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast. Very often, I just produce the content, I do the recording, and then I title it. And this is probably the first time ever that I emailed David and said, I want to do one that says David Snyder on kinesthetic change. And that's the full direction we went. What are your clients feeling? How are they experiencing that in their bodies? And how do we help them to begin to reprogram that in a very enjoyable way? So let's jump right in. This is session number 69 with David Snyder on kinesthetic change. Because it comes from that point of view that as we're doing it, we sometimes find ourselves in front of the class looking at our own words and realizing I'm not, I haven't done it that way for the last hundred clients. And I have to actually open my classes with a disclaimer. I said, I'm giving you a manual. Don't use it. <laughs> I do though. No, I do. There are actually certain things that I will point out in the manual that I just got to get out of the way first. First thing we'll talk about is ad reactions, mm-hmm. you know, because we just got to get the A word out of there. See, and I we'll handle talk- that in a clever way by starting off with the vocabulary and luckily and unluckily <laughs> that's the first word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's the one that, that will that will scare you out of the industry most often. And it's the one most of us as hypnotists are taught to avoid no matter what. In in the real world schools that, you know, where I'm, where I'm I, I get excited when I see an ad reaction, <laughs> you know, because I tell my students, most most classical hypnotists are trained to put the put the genie back in the bottle. You know, the scene fades and you tend to your breathing. But for a lot of what we do, it's also the fastest, most direct route to the problem. And on a, on a personal change level, if you have the stones, if you have the state control and the technique, the technical expertise, you know, the lexicon of techniques in your arsenal, you can, rat, you can very, very quickly resolve that client's problems by allowing yourself to follow the app reaction and, and go where it leads you to go. Most people shouldn't be doing that because most people just aren't, they don't have the kind of state control training that, for the kind of work I do at least, I, I can't speak for everybody else, that is required. 
Well, I'd mentioned the way that I've often addressed that is that for Ab Reaction, the theme is, and the same could be said for the spontaneous Esdale, that, that if you control it, you have, if you create it, you have control over it. Yep. That if you're in the middle of the session with a client and suddenly they're going into that Ab Reaction, I, I am of the mind generally that you don't necessarily follow it because it may or may not be related to the issue they're actually there for. Mm -hmm. Yet... Over the years, it's this place of, well, wait a minute, that's coming up now for a reason. Though, yeah, they're, they're, I found, I found it's even if even if it's tangentially, there's always a there's always a correlation to why they're there with that ab reaction. The the spider web of uh, ISEs and and SSEs that that are going on down there, the unconscious mind know for some reason the unconscious mind just knows what needs to be vomited up, and I found that. You need to vent that emotional charge in whatever way is appropriate to the situation. Uh, spontaneous ab reactions, I'll usually, I'll either find a way to guide it, like you said, or, uh, or I'll, just, I'll just let them vent it. Mostly because that, that emotional charge is what's keeping the problem stuck in the body. Uh, and as you vent the emotional charge, then the entire complex becomes much more malleable. Which you're hitting on the theme of exactly why I reached out to you to have this uh, ch this chat, this this mindset that, in my opinion, too much of hypnosis gets into logic, too much of hypnosis gets into thinking, mm -hmm. and gets into the reasons, the psychology behind it. When so much of it just gets into that kinesthetic, the, into That's that feeling, what's going through the body, what's someone experiencing. David, there's a person in your office for the first time. And what's kind of the ride that they're about to go on with you, if you had to describe it? Well, the first thing that they're going to discover is that they have a lot more control over their minds and bodies than they realize. Just in the intake alone, they're going to go into trance four or five times. But the difference will be is I'll almost never mention the word hypnosis unless they ask. I'll do a standard hypnotic heavy hand, light hand kind of thing mm -hmm. to give them an experience of their hands just moving on their own. But it's also my way of gauging uh, their willingness to comply. My discoveries and, and my epiphanies, for lack of a better word, I'm mean, like, discovery sounds like such a haughty thing to say, <laughs> but, because I'm sure other people have discovered the same thing, is that, uh, you don't, that people don't need to believe in what you do, they just need to follow the instructions. And as long as a person's willing to follow your instructions, you can get pretty much any result you want, and, uh, and even to the point of changing beliefs. So really our job as hypnotists isn't about installing a belief or, or necessarily even um, a sense of, although we, we want our clients to trust us, obviously, and if they didn't trust us, they wouldn't be paying us money to do the change work. But our job at the end of the day is to get them to change no matter what and keep them safe in the process. So we have to really assess, are they willing to follow our instructions and to what degree, what types of, of suggestion are they most are they most open to, but also how are they neurologically organized? How do they organize their internal experiences? And uh, what is their level of, of responsiveness when we change that organizational structure? Now, the reason I'm bringing all that up is because when I bring my clients in, after we go through the traditional heavy hand, light hand, which I never formally bring them out of trance when, I, when I'm done with that, uh, we start moving their pictures around from an NLP style. But, the act, but what happens is the client is the one actually moving their pictures around. And so what's happening is we call it point and click therapy. We start with then point isolating a good feeling in their body, something that they really, really like. You don't get resistance to good feelings. And if they have resistance to good feelings, we have a workaround for that too. But we have them physically point to where that feeling is in their body and then reach out and touch the holographic 
representation in their in the field around their body, which is what some is if that neurological projection is something that is always there and it's always running, and it's the filing cabinet that monitors and and, and modulates our kinesthetic experience. It's pretty cool. But what happens is we actually have them point to where they feel it, reach out and touch the image or the icon associated with that complex of emotions and feelings. And then we have them move it around. We have them bring it closer, move it away, make it bigger, make it smaller, move it behind them and validate what's going on. So just in that process, A, each time they move that picture around, it fractionates them so they're going deeper. They're having a, a verifiable experience, but they're doing it. Even though my words and my guidance is assisting them, they're doing it. So they're getting this insight that there's a level to their neurology that they can control, that they can do. Now, most of the time, they don't consciously attribute that to me, even though they're the ones are attributed to themselves. They, they attribute it to me because I'm the one speaking and guiding them through the process because all hypnosis is a cooperative process. You know, whether you believe that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis or not, it's a cooperative process because if the hypnotic operator weren't there, that person wouldn't change. It's just that simple. You can have all the potential in the world, but if you have no way to utilize it or understand how to do it, you're dead in the water. So their whole process is really about me assessing, are they a good fit? And that's the, that's the frame that all of my clients are put into when they walk into my room. It's not, how do I convince you to become my client? It's, you have to convince me you're good enough to be my client. Right, and when you when you change that frame around, you get no resistance to your suggestions. You get no resistance to the change work. But we do introduce them right off the bat to this pointing where they feel it idea, reaching out and connecting it to the proprioceptive projection around their body, which NLP isolated, but really didn't do a whole lot with beyond a cute little thing they called the swish pattern, and a little bit of timeline. They really didn't tap into the full potential of that of the implications of that, which was really kind of sad. They all went linguistic, which is cool, but I have, to, I have to, I have to I agree have to because in so many ways, again, it's getting into that language, but to get into the language of the body, to get into the language of, see, my, my brand of talking about what you've been chatting about there is breaking down that reality. So really mm -hmm. this submodality style way of going into that issue that as soon as we start to move things around, as soon as we start to move around images and feelings and sensations, if anything, phase number one, the foot's in the door, mm -hmm. and that issue just cannot work the same way again. Mm -hmm. We've broken down the reality of just how real that thing used to be. Yeah, there's, there's, there's so many different aspects to this, this as NLP likes to call it, and I do mention the submodality interventions, you know, one of the things that, and this is one of the more newer revelations, I always suspected this, but now after studying the work of, of Brent Baum and, and his trauma work with holographic memory resolution, I really got strong confirmation on what I've been suspecting for quite some time. That the human, the human nervous system, these things we talk about as submodalities and, and you know, touching the, the pictures and things like that. NLP holds as purely imaginative phenomena. In other words, there's no, other than as a really cool hallucination, uh, there's no other reality or realness to the phenomena. Uh, we're starting to really find out that there's actually a holographic phenomenon going on here. And these, these submodalities, these icons that are floating around our neurology, are actually holographic containers for massive amounts of information. And, and as we and because all the holographs are both fractal and holographic in nature, 
you change one piece, just like you just talked about, everything has to change. So there's different ways that you can, you can manipulate that holographic information. But it all starts with going back to the language of the body, as you put it. That feeling, we call it point-and-click therapy. If you can point to where you feel it, you can change it. And it really is that, that simple uh, in terms of actually applying it. The interesting thing, uh, there was something I really wanted to put out there. Oh, this is what I was going to talk about. When you, the moment you start having people point to where they feel it and reaching out and touching the picture, they're on the threshold of somnambulism. They're already seeing shit and moving shit around. Yeah, there's already something hypnotic. And it's in seconds. So you don't even need, you know, these, these element inductions or, you know, which is my favorite induction, by the way, my versions of it. I don't, my, you know, the, my, my, my version of the element is called the four magic bullets. It takes two and a half minutes. It's the longest induction I do. <laughs> but because the moment they point to where they feel it, the moment they reach out and touch the picture, they create a somatic bridge. So they're actually activating different pathways in their brain and spinal cord that carry similar information. We're opening, by, by learning how to work with these holographic projections while at the same time pointing to where we feel it, by causing them to oscillate back and forth between external awareness and internal awareness, associated viewpoints and dissociated viewpoints, all at the same time, you're lighting that brain up like a Christmas tree. You're creating profound trance states through neurological absorption and activity within a, you're actually engaging conscious mind processes within an imaginary construct, which is kind of cool because it gets all of the brain activated and synergized into that change process, which is one of the problems that we have. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, we're getting more and more talky as, as therapists. And I think one of the problems and one of the reasons for that is, and this is purely my observation, is because we as hypnotists keep referencing psychology. Yes for our technique, for, for how to approach the mind. And while I think psychology can definitely inform us, I think watching and observing and watching the patterns of what people do and how they describe those things can give us far more insight into how to deal with the somatics. The somatics, remember, and I tell this, and I'll, it's, this is nothing you've, you probably haven't heard me say many times before, but I, I tell it to all your listeners is, remember that human beings, everything human beings do is in response to a feeling in their body. It's either a feeling they want more of, or it's a feeling they want a whole lot less of. And all of their behaviors and all their rationales are, are oriented towards the achievement of that goal, getting more of some feelings and less of others. And all feelings, even if, whether they're emotional, and science has shown us this now too, there is no difference from the body perspective between a physical pain of an injury and an emotional one. Right? And object relations theory, embodied cognition studies are pointing to this same area, the same parts of our brain that monitor emotional warmth also monitor physical warmth. So what you've got is a, a brain that can process literally, metaphorically, and logically all at the same time, but it uses the body like a big cloud server or a hard drive. And the node where all of that stuff is accessed is the feeling point. So if we can point to where we feel it, we have the primary somatic engagement that we need to access all of that information. So we point to it, we reach out, we touch it, and magic starts to happen very, very quickly. Not because we're isolating parts of the brain from other parts of the brain, but because we're integrating everything from the mind to the body to the emotions and all points in between. If you believe in energetics, we're getting those acupuncture meridians and those chakras involved. It's all being synergistically activated and targeted to a specific point with a specific outcome in mind, which is why we get change in two minutes or less many times. Let's jump around a little bit. Uh, how did you 
first get interested in all of this? All of what specific? <laughs> getting all meta on you now. I know, I know. <laughs> so we could say, and and I love. I'm on one of your websites here. One of uh, yeah. the aspects of Oriental medicine, hypnosis, NLP, martial arts, healing. How did you get started along this journey? Well, the truth is, being a healer, being a being a hypnotherapist, was the last thing on my agenda. Um, like I, I'm. I'm so quoted as saying, when I was younger and studying these things, what got me into, I, I always tell people, never underestimate the, the desire and the relentlessness of a horny male. <laughs> I really just wanted to get good at martial arts, kick butt, be cool, and, and meet lots of women. And so I decided that I was going to study as many different things as I could to that end. Now, the interesting thing was, is the time when I was, when I was going through the, that study phase, the vast majority of information that was even remotely related to those fields came from psychology. It came from hypnosis. It came from healing arts, energy healing arts. And so I went as deep dish into those things as I could find. And, you know, I kept running into people saying, well, you can't do this. Hypnosis is powerful, but you can't do it for this. And I say, why not? Uh, well, basically, because you just can't. And basically what that means is they don't know how to do it. But basically, the more I studied, the deeper I went, uh, I started finding things that worked. I started finding a lot of things that didn't work. And... Again, I would, and I would always learn, I would go deep and I would just keep shoveling shit. No, no pun intended. You know, you got to pan for gold in a lot of these disciplines. There's a lot of snake oil out there. But every now and then you find one or two pieces that make the jigsaw puzzle start to make sense. You have to go out and you have to test things. You have to do things. So I got very involved with the NLP community. I got very involved in the, actually, what will later become the, the pickup and seduction community in 2000. 2002, I, uh, I moved to Los Angeles, just outside of Los Angeles, to go to acupuncture school, primarily because uh, when I was living, before that I had been living in Oklahoma, I had, that's actually where I started my undergraduate education, I had developed this system of persuasion that I had been using, primarily for me, I hadn't been really doing it in terms of, um, you know, using it on a professional level outside of certain contexts, but when I got to, I got to Oklahoma City, I decided to use some of these language skills I'd acquired in my schoolwork. And by the end of the first semester, I was on a full scholarship. I had been asked to become the editor of the school newspaper. I was, by the end of the second semester, I was basically the, uh, one of the leaders in, in the National Honor Society for two-year colleges. And I could give you the whole pedigree. But the bottom line is my conversational hypnosis skills, and I'm big on conversational hypnosis, even though it's one of the last things I teach in my systems, because it's body centered, it's body energized. But basically, I moved, I was, during that time, and this is how it's relevant, is I, I had come to a decision in my life that I needed something that was more stable, but would also, because I have a really, really low boredom threshold and a really, really low tolerance for being made to do things I don't want to do. So I had a choice. I had to choose a career path. I was coming to the end of my two year term, I'd gotten my degree in management. And now I had to decide, okay, do I want to do healthcare or follow my passion for human behavior and go into behavioral profiling? And that was really my passion. I still is. And I saw I did some, some more nuts and bolts research and I looked at the, the uh, income potential of, uh, of a cop and, the, <laughs> and uh, the stress level of a cop and promptly chose healthcare. And so I moved to L.A. And L.A. was while, while I was working in okay. and studying acupuncture and oriental medicine at the Southern California University of Health Sciences. I had reached out to a couple of friends and gotten involved in 
what I, at the time was a very, very unknown uh, culture of people devoted to learning how to utilize hypnotic technique, NLP, social influence skills for advancing their dating agendas, I guess is a good way to put it. And the interesting thing about that is that there were some tremendous, tremendous breakthroughs in terms of how this stuff can be applied in hostile environments. You see, one of the problems that we have with a lot of our technique, Jason, is that it's honed in a very forgiving environment, the seminar room, you know, or in some cases, the, to the therapy room. And as, as people who started using the, the works of Erickson and, and Bandler and all these other guys discovered that is what works real well in the seminar room doesn't work real well in the, in the L.A. singles bar. And I'm not a big bar person. Um, but I think that statement even applies back to looking at, you know, some of the techniques that mm-hmm. it, it's going to work best in this environment. Yet here's the guy coming in extremely stressed about something. And are you really going to look at him and tell him just to go ahead and relax and send that comfort yeah, down his body? No. And, and so, you know, you know, to close this loop, I started using conversational hypnosis. I, 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 two things happened. A, while I was out here. Uh, for the first time and going to acupuncture school, I was by myself. There was I had absolutely no support network out here, so I reached out, made a few friends online, and then uh, an opportunity came up for to develop a practice group with a, with an, an organization that was no, was based primarily in New York, known as the uh, the Somnambulistic Sleepwalkers. It was founded by a guy named John Petricelli. The idea of free practice groups kind of took off, uh, and before we knew it, there was a group in San Francisco, and then. What was his name? I can't even remember his name. I'll, I'll get it back in a minute. But the guy in, in San Francisco who started the practice, the, the uh, San Francisco practice group asked uh, the guy in New York if uh, it would be okay to start opening up satellite groups with the same name. And the LA, the LA branch came up and I was head on the list to start a group because I knew if I didn't do something, I wouldn't. You know, it, it just was one of those things. So I, cr- I created the uh, LA chapter of the Somnambulistic Sleepwalkers. Pretty much within 30 seconds of me raising my hand, the next person to raise their hand was a guy named Richard Clark. Mm. And, uh, and so we kind of communicated and collaborated, and uh, we built our list. And for about 30 days, we just created tremendous, tremendous uh, buzz about what we were doing. And then we scheduled our first meetup. Well, meetup wasn't around then, but that's pretty much what they are now. And about 12 of us converged on this uh, student union in Long Beach. And the first four people to show up were myself, uh, Richard Clark. Scott Sandlin, and Richard Rumble. <laughs> and that was the beginning. Uh, Thomas Greenhalgh, who uh, later left the, the program, was also one of the people to show up. But, uh, but that was the beginning of an era that really started to turn people on into what, what could we could do as a community. Now, we know the and, and, and Sleepwalkers program went on for about 2000, uh, from 2001 or two, 2002, I think, is where we started. Uh, to about 2005, when I moved to San Francisco, or to San Diego, rather, you know, things kind of went on their wayside. You know, Richard and, and Scott went in their own directions. I went, you know, obviously south. Uh, Richard's still floating around. We see him at HypnoThoughts all the time. But what you see now is HypnoThoughts Live in Vegas. What you see is HypnoThoughts, uh, the social media network, came from this idea of people getting together to roll up their, their sleeves, do the drills and get the skills without an agenda other than to practice and get better, without promoting an organization or without trying to sell a training or to sell a product. It was all about contribution. It was all about just people having a good time learning stuff. And we didn't care if you had 20 years of hypnosis or NLP experience or 20 minutes. 
All we cared about was that you had a sincere desire to learn, uh, to roll up your sleeves, do the drills, and get the skills. And that was what we did. We, we put out some powerful, powerful people who never got a certificate because that wasn't what it was about. It was about competency. It was about fun. And all applications were allowed. And that was the best part because uh, when you're building a community like that, you're going to get all kinds of questions and you're going to have to figure out an answer and then practice and test it to see if it works. So out of those you know, four or five years came a tremendous amount of growth both for the people who were running it, like, you know, Scott and myself and uh, Richard and, and everybody else, but also for the people who attended. And so what happened, you had, you started to have a tremendous amount of cross-pollination between all of these different applications. And at the same time that was going on, I was in my internship at the acupuncture school. So what I would do is when I would, when I would take in a new client, I would actually use conversational hypnosis while I was doing their intake and while I was doing their treatment. I would literally use hypnotic language to install and prime them to heal faster. And then as I was inserting the needles, I would actually hypnotically describe the action of each of the points that as I was needling it. Because first of all, most people don't know this, but when you needle an acupuncture point, the brain actually dips into an alpha state. So they're already in a trance. So you might as well use it. And so when the needles were all done and I'd already primed them subconsciously, I would actually teach them. Now I'm going to teach you a very old Chinese meditation technique. I want you to close your eyes and relax the tiny muscles in your eyelids until they're so relaxed they just (laughs) won't work. (laughs) They'd come out of the room and I have a 40% bump in treatment outcomes because of the hypnotic endorphin releases and and the programming that we'd done. So I'd I'd started integrating this stuff on a linguistic and energetic and a somatic level, right from the moment I walked into the clinic, it just seemed to make perfect sense to me. And that was kind of what started me on the path of maybe someday doing this for healing. It still wasn't my primary, wasn't my primary um, focus. But as I graduated, I was offered a, a chance to, to join a clinic down in uh, San Diego. And uh, I thought I was going to wind up doing acupuncture. Next thing I know, I've got chronic pain patients who are obviously suffering from psychosomatic issues. Next thing I know, I'm regressing to cause and uh, just making their shit go away. Within a year, I was doing no acupuncture whatsoever. I was fixing everything using hypnosis and NLP and combinations. And then all all the technologies just started to kind of dovetail after that. Um, But I really got backdoored in terms of the healing work. Um, because it wasn't my emphasis, but as I got better and better and deeper insights from working with human beings in, in the real world, right? Uh, and that's really what you have to do. You have to just go out and, and contact human beings in their natural environment and observe them. Uh, and kind of putting the, kind of the, the closing this loop, the reason I talked about going into the seduction community and going into the real world applications and things like this is because as a martial artist, I believe your stuff has to work. And there's an old saying that I grew up with that what works in the street will always work in the dojo. But what works in the dojo won't always work in the street. So what happened is when we took these therapeutically originated techniques out into the street and made and found ways to make them work, when we brought them back into the treatment room, they were exponentially more powerful, faster, and effective than the original versions. And I never, I never forgot that lesson. And it's always something I've, I've embraced is like, let's just go out into the harshest, uh, most challenging environments we can find and see what actually works. 
Because if it works in those environments and we take them into simpler, more forgiving environments where we have more control, the treatment room, the classroom, the boardroom, as opposed to the singles bar, the interrogation room, then you have a higher, much higher probability of success. But you also have to have that ability to adapt and pay attention and modify because the person in your chair didn't read the script. They don't know how it's supposed to go. So you have to be aware enough of what that client is doing to modify and adapt. And that's one of the things that, that no amount of script work will prepare you for. You've got to just get in front of people and do this work, regardless of what school you go to or from. you got to get in front of people and do this work because they will teach you more about how to do it than any book or any, any seminar or any video. And to quote Forrest Gump, that's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'd unpack several of it from different perspectives for a moment that on, on the chain side of things, mm -hmm. that to look at this journey from the acupuncture to these other healing practices, mm -hmm. that when we start to address it all as there's some systems, there are some frequencies, there are some energies, there are some feelings and thoughts that are all processing, and they're not yet aligned in the way that we would like them to be. Sure. In the business networking world, there's in a group called BNI, Business Networking mm -hmm. International. There, there are two concepts. The older thing was called a contact sphere, and the newer thing is called a power team. And the theme is people in business who are together and they all serve the same groups of clients. So for example, there's the obvious uh, real estate power team, which is going to have real estate agent, mortgage broker, closing uh, company, title insurance, all that, uh, you know, home insurance, all that stuff. It, but the difference would be that health and wellness was always a category that you wouldn't always find that great of a power team. And the reason was because it was more of their older terminology mm -hmm. of a contact sphere that your chiropractor, your hypnotist, your acupuncturist, your all these different categories had different solutions for that same client with the same reporting issue, mm -hmm. headaches. So yeah. it's from that perspective that really all this stuff works. And I think to, to fold in another business side of it is that far too many people get into this and they might have a resume similar to yours, yet they'd be making that mistake of giving the client the menu. Well, mm -hmm. do you want the Reiki? Do you want the acupuncture? Do you want hypnosis? Oh, hypnosis is this fee. And what I want people to really hear from your journey is that it's morphed into this final thing, which is them in the room with David. Yeah, pretty much. You, because pe I, I tell all my students this, and, I, and you as a marketer know, and I, and I really respect you as a marketer. I've, I've really watched you know, what you've been promoting and how you've been promoting, and, and obviously I've sent clients to you, obviously. And uh, I really respect your approach. And, and this is the thing that I think we both agree on is that people don't care if you wave a dead chicken over their head as long as they feel better coming out of your room than they did going in. You know, we, we as hypnotists, energy healers, we get all hung up in, in the what we do or the how we do it rather than the what. And, and the bottom line is, is people don't look for a hypnotist. People don't look for an energy healer. They look for someone to make their pain go away. And all they care about at the end of the day is did you make their pain go away? Very few people, very few ever really try to grill me on what modalities I'm going to use. Mm -hmm. And it's usually because they're <laughs> – what I've noticed with those people is that they're looking for a way to beat it. 
if they know ahead of time what you're going to use, they're going to try and beat it. Or I, or I mean, actually, even today, my, my morning appointment before we jumped on this call together with somebody mm -hmm. who I, I can say it comfortably had a pretty bad hypnotic experience elsewhere mm -hmm. and was coming in from the thought of, I don't want you doing the things that they did. Yep. Yet it was from this place of let's begin to modify it. I want to change gears for a moment. And this may come across more as a uh, pat on the back, though I'd love to hear it from the inside rather than the outside perspective, because I, <laughs> I don't have any specific training and experience in, in these categories that many people in our hypnosis community would put forth as being very polarizing and have negative connotations on the, the themes of anything erotic hypnosis or even seduction related. Mm -hmm. Though what I'd point out is from the outside perspective, the hypnotist that I meet who have, let's call it a respectful understanding as to what the principles are inside of it. Mm -hmm those same skills translate directly over to their change process, whether it's the stop smoking client, the fear process, because it's again, getting into real states of mind. I mean, my, one of my best examples of this is this woman who's in my office, concert pianist, fabulous performer, but suddenly lost her edge. Mm. And it's that moment where she leans in and she says, it used to be such a pleasurable experience for mm -hmm. me to play that I've just lost that passion. And in that sentence, she gave me that contract. Now, this did not go to the depths of what many people would be considered to be of seduction or even erotic hypnosis, but quote, it went there because that's what her kinesthetic experience was mm -hmm. when playing. You know, to get somebody enjoying exercise, to get somebody enjoying this lifestyle of being the non-smoker, to get someone from the other side of I'm fearful when I speak to now I'm enjoying the hell out of it. So how do the skills of the let's let's go there, the erotic hypnotist or even the person who's a student of anything seduction oriented, how directly does that correlate over to our our change process? Well, all forms of human influence are seduction. There we go. Period. period end of story. The uh, in fact, um, at the hypno thoughts, this um, First of all, let me, let, me, let me put something out there real quick. Personal, I, have, I have a personal distaste for the word seduction just because of the meta message and the emotional visceral response it generates in people. Seduction implies enticing somebody to do something that's not good for them or that they, they wouldn't have chosen to do anyway. And while that may be true on some levels, I, it's just not the energy I like to put out there. So when I talk about these things, I talk about in terms of attraction. I talk about in, in generating intimacy and connection with people that leads to, you know, in, you know, physical intimacy as well as emotional intimacy. But I just wanted to put that out there because there's a lot of people that when they hear that word seduction, the perceptual filters shift because of the emo the physical sensations in their body and they start viewing the information in a way that's not useful for them to actually be able to use it. I think that's absolutely necessary because it's yeah. certain words turn people off. We have to understand that when I teach conversational hypnosis, I teach my students that uh, and I, I spend a lot of time bagging on neurolinguistic programmers because I can. <laughs> but for every word you hear, there's three definitions. There's the common usage, which you know we talk about people who are cool. Well, we all know cool is uh, a colloquialism for you know neat or powerful or we approve of them. But cool is also has the, the physical definition of temperature, right? But there's also there's also an emotional response that we have in our bodies when we hear certain types of words. The most common 
the most common example I give my students would be the difference between persuasion and manipulation. Now, the dictionary definition is somewhat similar, but the, the emotions, the visceral response you get when you hear those words dramatically changes. And it's important to understand that because that feeling shift in your body is analogous to a change in the perceptual filters that you bring to bear on the information. Remember I said at the beginning of our talk that everything human beings do is in response to a feeling. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of a book called Emotions Revealed uh, by Dr. Paul Ekman, but in that book, he isolates a behavior in the human nervous system known as the emotional refractory period. That emotional refractory period is literally like a little life form. Every time the, the human neurology undergoes a shift in its emotional state, the priority it gives to certain categories of information shifts and it automatically pre-sorts the information coming in through the five senses for anything that will reinforce or re-trigger the emotional state it's currently in. And we build on this in our conversational hypnosis classes and things like that. In terms of, uh, and, and this is why we need to really understand that it's the emotion elicited by the words we use that have the most impact on its ability to, to influence us one way or another. Now, in terms of erotic hypnosis, human beings go through life with the, with the equivalent of a jet engine and an anchor strapped to their back. And it's the difference between the drag from the anchor and the thrust from the engine that determines how far they get, how fast. Uh, more often than not, if all we did was cut the anchor, uh, we'd take off like a rocket. So getting back to this idea that all forms of human influence are seduction, yes. If you look at every single, every single social interaction that we have, from teaching to, well, let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, I call it the one plus one equals three scenario, right? These are two people, they meet, they're complete strangers, and they go through the seven stages of going from complete stranger to intimacy. We call it the mating dance. There's certain, there are definable body language principles. I'll be teaching this in aspects of this at the, my, one of my breakouts at HypnoThoughts. And the reason that it's important, not just from a seduction or an attraction standpoint, is because all other relationships, all other forms of social interaction fall within that paradigm. They fall within that continuum of going from stranger to lover. Even if it's a business relationship, you will see people going through these discrete body language phases through that interaction. And so it becomes tremendously useful to understand that every form of social interaction we engage in, from a casual meeting to, you know, marriage, falls within that paradigm. So seduction really is the archetype or the, 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 mating, the mating ritual, as I like to call it, the dance, as I call it, is the archetype for all social interactions. It's just a question of degree. And when we understand things from that perspective, then all the almost all the body language cues that people generate become very easy to decipher and calibrate. Um, one of the problems that we have with understanding the body is that there's no lexicon, there's no framework to put all of these different cues in. How do we arrange them? How do we organize them? What do we look for first? What do we look for second? You know, and once we understand a few primary principles, we don't have to know every single body language cue to ascertain where people are in the stage of their relationship. You know, are they more stranger? Are, is he more interested in her? Is she more interested in him? You know, are they, have they been intimate? These are things that you can actually speed read if you know the big picture stuff. So I don't know if I just got off on a really big tangent there, but I hope That's I answered your question. 
Yeah. No, in terms of the people who can integrate it from one to the other, again, recognizing it as either moving towards pleasure or away from pain. The, yeah. the aspect that I think as a community, yes, there are exceptions to this, but there are some that are often a little too dismissive of the category mm-hmm. uh, that I can, I can, you know, reference. It intimidates. It yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. I've, I've had, and again, I'm not, I'm not going to name names or anything. I've had seasoned hypnosis trainers come into my hypnosis class. And after the first demo, they bailed. I mean, they, 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 it was just so provocative for them. It, it, was, it was a triggering process. And, and, that's, and it's important to understand that as hypnotists, we constantly need to be working on our own shit. You know, it's very, you know your, your clients will very often mirror some of your own, your own issues and things like that. So we need to be constantly working on our stuff. And as we do, we gain more insights into our clients and vice versa. But erotic hypnosis is something that there's different layers to that. There's different levels to it. You know, uh, there's people who, who, who really embrace the lifestyle of an erotic hypnosis or, or what I call power exchange, BDSM, those kinds of things. That's really not my thing. But there are a tremendous, tremendous amount of people who want to explore, who want to play, who want to re- reignite and reactivate that intimacy with their partners and don't know where to go. They want to engage in fantasies but don't know how to make them real or, or make them live or They've, they've accumulated, you know, after 20 or 30 years of marriage, they've accumulated some baggage that gets in the way of intimacy, and they need to get rid of that. These are all aspects of erotic hypnosis, but the truth is, is some of the most powerful neurotransmitters that allow us to create powerful and lasting change are, are activated in intense pleasure states. And the longer that we can keep people in these states the more powerfully we produce those neurotransmitters and the more rapidly we can hardwire in really deep, pervasive change. And we need, as, as therapists, we need to understand that there's a tremendous power here and it's, and it's power that we can use to help our clients. But we have to be willing to deal with it on our, in our own way without realizing, you know, thinking of it as, you know, you're some creepy dude or some creepy girl or whatever. Uh, a lot of your your because our 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 uh, our discipline is so, so informed by psychotherapy and psychotherapy related offshoots like marriage and family therapy and things like that. We're we're taught to steer away from things like transfer you know, that would engender transference or counter transference, mostly because the people who created those rules didn't trust the therapists themselves. That was the interesting part when I was reading on that was. They, they, they felt that these kinds of techniques or, or this idea was giving too much power to the therapist. Well, from my perspective, that power and that power would give you a tremendous amount of influence over the subject. And my thought was, yeah, that's why they came to me. Because if they could have fixed it, they wouldn't be in the chair. That's right. That's right. So... If my job is to do everything I can to help them and they, they're paying me to influence them, why wouldn't I use this technique if I'm using it responsibly? Right? The secret is, is when you when you utilize transference or what smacks of transference, you're only brought you're only violating ethics when you don't give them their autonomy back. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I, think I think it's, that, it's issue that issue where, where people should get into this and often will not have the right mindset. Well, this is, again, one of the big challenges is because there's a lot of people who get into hypnosis who have some wiring that they need to fix. Yeah. Yeah. The, the situation where someone's in a classroom, but they should be in the other room at the office and the recliner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 
as it were, which it's all going somewhere and they'll, they'll get the help when necessary. But again, it's this place of, I wanted to have this chat also not to, to point out it's a category that people would often be so dismissive of, but to pull out, uh, I can reference people who have been to workshops of yours to go, yes, mm -hmm. that technique was inducing that pleasurable response, yet I've now taken it and that's a critical part of my stop smoking protocol now. Mm -hmm to get them on the other side, because I mean, here's the client in my office the other day that she's not a heavy smoker, but it's that nighttime ritual mm -hmm. that the kids are in bed. She's now outside. She's got the fire lit up. She's lighting one for herself. Her husband hates the smell of it. And that's her, that's her time. Mm -hmm. That's, that's that ritual that we've got to find a better way to satisfy it. And the biggest fear was, I'm going to lose this time. And as a result of what we've done together, it's the, I'm enjoying that time even more Perfect. without the distraction of the cigarette. I'm able to have the same pleasurable experience, yet I'm able to produce that response on my own and not because the cigarette's there. Yeah, many times the, the, the most powerful, remember, we, we, you said it, we've, we've come back to it, human beings move towards pleasure and away from pain. And... We just, the average human being just does not get enough pleasure. They don't get enough pleasure. And it's, and our neurology is suffering, especially females. You know, their, their whole system goes, you know, the, the, the level of, of hormonal change that we as men go through in a single year isn't even close to what they endure in a single month. And the oxytocin that's released from these pleasure states is tremendously helpful. For them, it resets their neurology. It resets their endocrinology. Uh, it reduces neurosis. You're familiar with the original definition of hysteria, and how it was cured back in the early part of the, the was it the 20th century or the 19th century? I can't remember. Yes, very closely also related to uh, the invention of breakfast cereal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think we should just let people Google these ones for themselves and okay. enjoy the yeah, reading of it. <laughs> Yeah, the interesting Not thing is that the whole but it's just a whole wonderful little uh, wild goose chase you can go off on yeah. on uh, Google. <laughs> yeah, but if you're interested in erotic hypnosis, I don't know, I don't know what will happen next year. Uh, we, I, the, the hypnosis, the erotic hypnosis courses I did at Hypnothoughts last two years, I was actually requested to do them, which kind of surprised me, but uh, I was happy to do them, and they became quite popular, uh, and I'm, I was grateful for that because we were actually able to do. What I think an, uh, an introduction to that particular topic needed to be, it needed to be gentle, it needed to be based on this understanding that this is not something you do to someone, it's something you do with them, uh, that there's a, pre there's a presupposition in this that this is a partner type of a relationship. Um, not to, I'm not going to talk about other people who do these kinds of things, but there is, there is a small community out there that, that kind of view those applications as, you know, alternate ways of, of having a real sex and it's just not it's, it's it, it needs to be an enhancement to a relationship that you're having rather than another trick up your sleeve to maybe get some that you wouldn't have gotten any other way i don't know if that makes sense or not no that does and especially from the perspective of putting it all in a more appropriate landscape that's where people again they criticize without actually exploring Mm -hmm. that very often many organizations would just simply say, we have a strict policy against it, which is the safer CYA strategy. Mm -hmm. Yet I think it's that, that classic phrase of learning from people who disagree with each other, looking at things from that 
contextual mindset to realize that, again, these are abilities we can harness. Yet I want to go back for a brief moment. The, the phrasing that you used inside of this, this little uh, diversion here, which was that they envision us as that person who can help us do these things. Mm -hmm. So it's where I appreciate the mindset and modern hypnosis of I'm going to use my process to teach my client. Yet that's a hard thing to sell to somebody when they haven't yet done it their entire life. Mm -hmm. Whether that's public speaking, whether that's overcoming this fear, whether that's losing weight, it doesn't matter what the category is. The, the, mm -hmm. the personal confidence that they can create these results is not there. And the main word here is yet. Yeah. Yet to yeah. give them that experience and then have that transfer. Absolutely. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to be very indirect in terms of getting them there. We have a concept in, in my system we call bucket listing, which is where we organize the things we want to change from most challenging to least challenging. And we start with the least challenging things and we keep working at those levels of emotional intensity until they can do it like, like falling out of a, you know, like the easiest falling out of bed. And then they move on to the next level. Then they move on to the next level. And so by the time they've reached the third and fourth and level, you know, and if you think of it, you know, the emotional stuff we're dealing with, uh, like storming the beaches of Normandy is your level 10. That's the, the one thing that you want to, the biggest, most horrifying thing in your life. And then half, you know, you cut that intensity in half, you have a level five, you cut that in half, you have a 2.5 all the way down to zero. And that actually allows you to organize the things you want to deal with based on the emotional charge. Now, just the act of managing it that way and organizing it that way changes how you relate to everything, which is big. But then you start dealing with stuff from the, the one level, the zero to one level, and you keep rehearsing at that level until they can do that like falling off a log. When they can do that three, four, five times easily, then you take them to the level twos until they can do that, level threes, level fours. And what happens is you start to build up a tremendous history of confidence in the technique and in the process before moving on to the next piece. Because we all know that anytime you're in a, as a hypnotist, we know anytime you're in a situation, the first thing the unconscious mind does is ask the question, have we been here before? Have we done this before? What did we do? We'll do that again. Well, when you're trying to do a technique that you have absolutely no history of success with and you're throwing it against the biggest, nastiest, most challenging thing in your life, it's like Bambi versus Godzilla, <laughs> right? It's just, it's, you just, it's, it may work because Bambi may have a new kitten under his antler or something, but probably not. So you need to organize experiences in a way that builds a track record of success. And you may need to build in building blocks that lead to the, if we're talking in the context of erotic hypnosis, which doesn't have to be. Builds up to those apply over for weight loss. The yes, same absolutely. things that apply over for quitting smoking, overcoming fears. What are the components you can absolutely do today? What are those things that's the low-hanging fruit to begin to yeah. address? And because you're dealing with it indirectly, you're secretly like you're, you're you're approaching it from a completely different angle. So by the time you get to the actual problem, it's not nearly as strong as it was. You know, and that's kind of the, that's what we developed like my identity by design process that we'll be doing as the three-day post-event at HypnoThoughts is that entire process that teaches us how to remove generalized negativity, remove negativity that has lessons attached that would prevent the neurology from getting rid of it, removing the voices in your head that tell you you can't from your authority figures, reorganizing your past so that you know when you look back on the past, you only remember it in ways that make your life better, uh, installing driver states that move you forward, and then adding into that will take you back before your first memory and install these things as filters and and 
then we'll add in all the qualities and characteristics of people who you admire in a deep trance identification type of a process. These are all things that, that again, go back to that concept of bucket listing, but they, 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 they approach one facet of the complex at the same time. And again, it can be used for weight loss. It can be used for smoking. It can be used for fears, phobias, nail biting. Chronic diseases actually work very well with this stuff. Any kind of OCD works, it works, it works well. These are all processes that, again, we have to know how to chunk and, and be indirect, even if we're using direct suggestion. We don't have to target the level 10s right off the bat, although that's our tendency, you know, and, and sometimes those little successes, those little base hits give us tremendous motivation to challenge the big stuff because we have that track record and that history of success. I mean, there's also the example of the client who might come into the process with a bit of a laundry list. Oh yeah, I get and, those times. Yeah, and and as soon as you're, as soon as the foot's firmly in the door and the big change is beginning to break its way down, and I mean, here's the one that I'm asking. Hey, did you want to work on that nail biting issue? And they're looking and going, Oh yeah, I just kind of stopped that. Yep. That the phrase is the medical world. Medical world uses the term generalization often as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can generalize the hell out of a good thing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so tell us more about it's the three day post conference at HypnoThoughts Live in Vegas this year. Secrets of I love the title. Secrets of Personality Transformation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we were talking about the the in my my time in the attraction and seduction communities. That's actually where this process came from. I was asked in 2010 to create an inner game process, a process that could teach people how to be more effective in social situations by people who were social phobia, had social phobias and, and approach anxieties and things like that. And uh, I went to my little drawing board and I just kind of sat down and kind of ohmed for a little while. And I got this download and I started looking at, you know, this, we first need to get rid of the gentle negativity. Then we need to focus on why they might hold themselves back. And it came down to identity and personality. I said, what are the building blocks? What are the, what are the foundations of a personality or an identity? And this particular process emerged as a way of systematically removing things that have been accumulated and stored in the body, removing events. What happens a lot of times is when a, when a process re- resists being removed, especially when we're removing it from the soma, it's because there's a lesson of safety attached to it that the neurology believes if it lets, if it releases this energy, if it lets it go, you'll forget the lesson and it'll happen again. And because of the way things gestalt in the, in the neurology, the body doesn't have a very clean way of extracting a lesson and letting the rest go. So we give it an alternate purpose. So that's level two in the identity by design process. The next part goes to dialogue, internal dialogue specifically, that we can learn from our, our caregivers and our, our, our dominant authority figures in our life. These are the voices that, that we identify with. See, we don't come into this world a fully actualized being aware of ourself. Always, everything around us is us for the first four to five years. That distinction of self and other becomes later. So everything that goes in goes in unchallenged and it becomes part of the building blocks of our identity. What identity by design is... is is targeted to do is systematically cleanse and reprocess the building blocks of that identity so that we become the person we want to be rather than the person we were programmed to be. So there will be aspects that target dialogue. There'll be uh, aspects that target 
what we call driver states, the normal, the normal feeling states in your body that either move you forward in life or cause you to hold back. We're going to install four distinct driver states that you can oscillate between. Then we're going to go back and we're going to systematically purge the negativity from your, t- from your timeline, to use a, an NLP term. And we're going to drain the negativity out of it, literally. Once we do that, we're going to actually boost your self-image and self-esteem. It's, it's a process called the 10x self. And what we've discovered is that uh, when you make pictures, when you relate to other people, the level of status they have in your world is directly proportional to the relative sizes of the image of you to them in your mind. So if you look at somebody who, who's, whose status you admire and you look at yourself next to them in your mind, you'll notice that their image tends to be a lot bigger than yours. But if you change the relative size of your image to theirs, you start to feel differently about them. Doesn't mean you don't necessarily respect them, but all of a sudden they're more of a peer, more of an equal. Or if they need to keep making that picture larger, they actually become more subordinate in your mind. And that all of those things change how you relate and what behaviors you generate in response to those people. So we're going to systematically improve and increase your self-image while installing powerful driver states that move you forward. We're going to purge the negativity from your past. We're going to reorient your timeline. Uh, so that when you remember the past, you only remember it in the ways that give you the results that you want. Then we're going to take all of that and we're going to move back to before your very first memory. We're going to install it into you as the foundation of yourself, the identity you chose to create. And from there, we're going to move you through your timeline again, uh, over and over again, each time extracting the information, going back to before your first memory and installing that identity there until you finally reach a certain point where you realize you're done. When you look back, you can't, it, nothing, nothing is the same as it used to be. Even though they may be the same events, they're completely different in terms of how you experience them. From there, we're going to actually go into generative processes. We're going to go into precisely how to do deep trans identification with the people's qualities, attributes, and characteristics that we want for ourselves. And we're going to integrate those into the entire spectrum of the identity we're creating for ourselves. We're also going to be exploring some of the more controversial sides of personality modification, uh, because, uh, some, some really cool conversational hypnosis techniques that we've been testing and using for removing and reversing resistance for creating deep level change, I guess is a good word. Uh, we won't gonna, we're not going to go too far off the reservation in terms of you know, those things, but we will, we will be talking about it. Plus I have a tendency to change the curriculum (laughs) depending on who's in my audience. So a lot of what we'll be doing will be me saying, okay, this is what we're covering today. And then what else do you want? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be a fun time. And a lot of this, and this whole process, um, is actually going to be taught. We're going to, we're going to drill you like it's a hypnotherapy certification, but it's actually designed on the last day, everything that we're going to be teaching you is going to be translated into a self-directed process. So this is something you'll be able to do for yourself, by yourself, in as little as seven minutes. Beautiful. 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 I want to jump into one piece of content here because I'm on the uh, page for it. I'll put links over in the show notes for all the uh, details of this upcoming training as well as uh, your websites too. But I'd love to hear some final thoughts. This is one specific point. Now, of course, it's not in front of me as I'm polite and don't stare at my screens as we're chatting, the aspect of reframing and rebuilding affirmations so they actually now become effective. Oh, yeah. 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 
one of the problems that we have is that we we speak affirmations, right? The problem is is that the affirmations we have, we're, we're doing it linguistically. We can't do that. We have to do it holographically. And what I mean by that is there has to be a feeling. In fact, I don't know. Have you, have you seen my image cycling video at all? No, I haven't. Okay. There is a, there is a technique I, I learned from a guy named Bill Bankston, uh, who was the creator of the Bankston Energy Healing System. And it was part of his system. It's called image cycling. And I found out by accident that it's the most powerful manifesting technique out there. And the way it's designed is through an understanding of rapidly cycling through a list of things that you want, kind of like an affirmation. But it has to have a strong feeling component and it has to have a carry past to it. And when you do that, the, the faster you cycle these things through your mind, the more rapidly your brain starts to approach a gamma state. And what happens is at some point, you little, your, your unconscious mind transitions, activates the non-local universe, and this thing impregnates the non-local universe, and the shit manifests. Now, image cycling was actually kind of an accident in that it was designed as a way to distract the test subjects who were actually doing the energy healing system that Bill was teaching, and they discovered by accident that everything that they cycled manifested. And we've literally had people manifesting cars a week after they learned the technique. It's, it's, it's pretty powerful. But it's a great way to activate very, very powerful change by understanding the speed at which we cycle through things and the emotion connected to them rather than just repeating by rote a, um, a, a litany for that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Where can people find you online, David? Well, you can go to nlppower.com is my new mega site. It's got pretty much, it's got like a hundred, hundred blog posts and 200 videos or it's a hundred videos and 200 blog posts. A lot of content. It's got a lot of content. <laughs> uh, and we're constantly adding more. We'll be a hit. We'll be a hypno thoughts live. I'll be there Friday, 8 a.m. to 1150. No, let me look at my numbers. Let me look at my, uh, my schedule real quick because we're actually I was quite surprised when I looked at my schedule that they had given me such wonderfully generous spots. Uh, Friday, August 26th, I'll be teaching a, a process called speed attraction. This is another thing that was really cool. Yeah, I'm going to go 10 a.m. to 11.50. It's a two-hour breakout. And for those of you who want to generate tremendous, tremendous trust, connection, uh, and compliance, in clients, this speed attraction training focuses on a protocol, a conversational hypnosis protocol known as Three Magic Questions. And it was originally designed for women to be used on men to simultaneously generate attraction while actually eliciting tremendous amounts of information about them. Now, I, I had to modify it a little bit for men to use with women, but that's not even what's cool about it was I also do a lot of consulting uh, to lawyers in the personal injury field and to a lot of other professional persuaders. They got their hands on this particular fr- framework and this protocol. And within six months, they were pulling down six and seven figure verdicts like it's nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Juries were falling in love with them. Expert witnesses were waiving their attorney-client privilege to answer my, cl- my, my students' questions based on this protocol and this framework. This framework is so powerful and so universal that you can take it into, and if you talk about networking, you use this process in a networking, in a networking environment, they will not be able to get, you will not be able to get rid of them. 
This will create such a powerful, powerful positioning and a feeling of connection between you and whoever you use it with that it's almost unfair, but it's the most ethical way you can communicate. That's what's the best part about it. It's completely ethical. There is absolutely, it's exactly what people want to hear and it allows you to understand them in a way that their best friends don't and it can take you from complete stranger to deep intimacy bordering on love in as little as 20 minutes. It's extraordinarily powerful. I'm really happy to be able to present it. And if you're, go- if you're in, in the business where people need to trust you, where you need to get people to do what you want them to do and want to do it, this is a must-have uh, for, your, for your arsenal. Uh, and you'll like it. It'll, it'll, it'll really change your life. Uh, same day, 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m., I'm doing a, 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 a one-hour talk on body language secrets. These are things on how to create trust using your body language, how to interpret body language. The actual, techni- the actual term is a, um, people reading for fun and profit. So this is a, a way to really utilize body language and nonverbal influence techniques to create more successful relationships, ultimately either in terms of your, your social life or in terms of your, your professional life. And then on Sunday... Uh, we'll be doing a three-hour breakout call on lie detection called Lie to Me If You Dare. Uh, it was very popular last year. Uh, it was actually one of the most well-attended breakouts. And it's a fun one. And a lot of people uh, remember that all of your clients are lying to you when they come in even though they don't know it. And this is, again, one of those things that uh, you can never know too much about how to, how to understand people's nonverbal cues and nonverbal signals. So we've got a, you know, the hypnothoughts people have been really, really good to me this year. And I'm looking forward to just hanging out with everybody and seeing you guys again out there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. weeks. All right, Jason. Thank you very much, brother. Awesome. Thanks for being on here. Mm -hmm. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com. Jason Lynette here. Thank you one more time for participating in this program. Leave your positive feedback over at the iTunes listing. Just head over to worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash iTunes, and that'll bring you directly over to the page to leave your feedback. And if you've enjoyed this program, I'd highly encourage you to take a look at Hypnotic Workers. Hypnotic Workers is the full brain dump of my entire hypnotherapy training systems. Rather than being a whole bunch of individual source programs. This is your full access to everything from inductions to deepening methods to methodologies for change. And more specifically, how do you put it all together? Head over to hypnoticworkers.com to learn more about that program. Get on the waiting list and as space is available, we're glad to welcome you in. Hypnoticworkers.com. I'll see you soon.